Y'all done exactly what I asked you not to, said the AM shift nurse with the clipboard, Shireen. She stood in the doorway, her hands on her hips. Vera Leggins continued to scream in her wheelchair, its wheels squeaking between the screams. Whatever had put her in such a condition, it seemed to have no outward cause, for now she was looking right at the TV where the nuclear family beset with travail was mending itself in a round-robin hug. Miss Luat pushed her chair forward, looking back at Miss Leggins with pointed distaste. Vera. Vera! Shh! She said. You're blocking out the best damn part. Shireen told us. Peaceably, gentlemen, please. Rob rose from his chair and we walked to the door. Sure enough, behind Shireen, two bored-looking orderlies leaned on the wall, looking me and Rob over with cursory menace. Shireen led us through Seven Oaks like a couple of drunks 86th from a bar, yet not towards the front doors as I had imagined, but in around the nurse's station and down the hallway deeper into the place, Vera Leggins's cries against being restrained growing fainter and fainter the further we went through the slalom of old folks in wheelchairs and walkers compelled to the day room to see what was wrong. Still getting over the shock of the fact that I'd been sleeping very likely with a dangerous stranger, I found it hard to put a pin in where exactly we were going. At first I'd assumed we were being led back to some head of security eager to grill us, but after a series of hard lefts and rights, I was no longer sure. We were walking past rooms. It was one of the nursing home's residence halls. The hush of a privacy best not invaded. The fumbling, ripe hush of the bountifully aged suffused the beige carpet, the vine print wallpaper. TVs squawked behind closed doors. My eyes were stinging in my skull for lack of sleep and twanging nerves. That almost perpetual sense of foreboding, the universe whispering doom in my ear. One of the doors that we went by stood open, and there at the edge of the bed sat the dwarf. His feet and tiny wingtip shoes were dangling high above the floor. His face beneath his stovepipe hat was just in the process of coming to light, the whiskered chin tipping, the teeth flashing white. But then, we were past him. The hallway had ended. Shireen turned around at a yellow fire door with a cigarette already poised in her mouth. They'll nick you for that on your monthly review, I said. But the woman ignored me. Let's all get some air. She opened the door, and we followed her out onto some kind of loading dock, cloudy with heat. An ashtray sat beside the door. Shireen and the other home staff's smoking outpost, and the woman lit up with a fidgety air, her thumb taking eons to get at the lighter. The smoke and the heat fairly made me upchuck. I suddenly wondered the last time I'd eaten. Popcorn a la Raisinets and Angel Hearts opening credits last night. The shift nurse said, Bullshit. Excuse me? I said. Friends of the family, my lily white ass. Y'all with the press. I know y'all. Rob and me looked back and forth. Then Rob nodded. I smiled at Shireen and said, Guilty as charged. With her eyes closed a moment, she held in the smoke. Her clipboard from before had grown, now fronted by a thick file folder. I thinned my eyes to see the tab, but the folder was stashed down too low at her side. She exhaled and nodded as though to herself. Okay, she said. 
Okay. Okay, I've been holding this madness for too long already. You want to know something about Mr. Baffetts? About Cleveland, Jarrell, and Amelia Kent? And here she peered around the dock to double-check we were alone. I'm the woman to ask. But you listen, sweetheart. This ain't no donut shop lagnap. Both of y'all need to fucking swear. Right here and right now in this god-awful heat that if y'all going forward with this, it's on y'all. It ain't my cross to bear. No more. We swear, said Rob. She said, do you? Then swear on this big-ass case file I got with me. She held it up and waited for us. Go on, she said. Need both y'all's hands. You reading the name right? Cornelius M. Baffitts. We put our hands upon the file and eyed Shireen and said, We swear. Okay, she said. I feel much better. Mind if I smoke till I'm dead? Of course you don't. She tandem lit another palm all. The LDHH, Medicaid, Medicare, you thought they was bad pre-Katrina? Well, shit. Bad didn't mean nothing till after the storm. Baffitts came to Seven Oaks when the system was just about as bad as it gets. Patients all in a jumble. Come in and come out. Big charity closes. Nobody knows shit. Meanwhile, out here at Seven Oaks, a center for assisted living, they cycling in all kinds of folks that no one here knows how to treat. Folks that's bipolar, compulsive, hears voices, some of them even done stretches in jail. Just whoever it seems been displaced by the storm and with no licensed doctor on record comes here. Baffitts, he was one of those. They tell you about him when he was admitted, I asked. They, Shireen blew smoke out her nose. They makes you think there was someone in charge, someone calling the shots in some office somewhere. There was no one in charge, I can guarantee that. Louisiana Lucy Goosey. One day he's there outside the place, no records, no nothing, all paperwork lost, or so says the suit from the LDHH. It's Seven Oaks' job to look after him now. All we do know is he suffered a stroke. Can't walk so good. He's in a chair. That, and what he used to do. What did he used to do? Asked Rob. Professor of the History of Photography at Tulane, she said. The second thing that struck me off. Got a Tulane professor, full-time in the past, at least a hundred grand a year, and one stroke in, they stick him here? He was just in a chair. He was 60 years old. Where's his family? His friends? Scotty Cowan, I swear, had three more strokes while he was here. Third one was the charm. Now he never sits up. How did he seem as a person? I asked. Her eyes looked away. Little bit of a mystery. As I said, he came scrubbed clean. We had to build a file for him. As y'all will later read, she said, had a wife, but she died in her fifties. Esophageal cancer or something like that. Got a son out of Matray. Young Walker Baffitts. Was a semi-pro golfer at one point in time. Subsequent means to a paycheck unknown. All that's in the file, I'll bet. I leveled my eyes at her. How did you find him? She shrugged. Polite and presentable. Kept to himself. But don't they always say that, though? Needed round-the-clock care, pretty much, to stay lively. Changes, sponge baths, fluff the pillow. Can't have been an easy life. Had something about him, I will tell you that. 
like he saw in you, saw your soul. Not only the stuff you was tolerable at, but also where you'd come up short. Saw you just as you were, rusty edges and all. And there was beauty there in that. He ever talked to you? said Rob. Said thank you. Always, said Shireen. Johnny on the spot with that. Apart from thank you, not so much. Always glued to his computer. Got one mounted here, she said, and she tabled the air at the height of her chin. He learned to work by doing this. She thrust her chin outward and dragged it back towards her. His room was also lined with books. And I'm not talking James Lee Burke. These were fancy books. Glossies. Photography books. I would guess by their look. Some even had his name on them. Imagine that, huh? The old guy was someone. Walker would help him page through them sometimes when he came out to visit Dad. And how often was that? I said. When he first got here, once a month. I mean, she said, if even that. But after he was here a while, and especially after he had his third stroke, the kid would be out here too, three times a week. He even bought a panel van, a big boat of a thing with a handicap loader, so they could go out and about in the parish. You know where they went? Ain't none of my business. This here is a home, not a supermax, darling. Amelia Kent, the social worker. When did she start treating Baffets? I said. Amelia, she said. Oh, Amelia, poor darling. We heard she was a special lady. Really, really was, she said. It's a sin on all goodness what happened to her. Every sense of good there is. We gave her some space to return to herself. She lit another cigarette. The ashtray was filled with them, hundreds of Paul Malls, and Shireen's living face showed the ravages of it. I pictured her out here in autumn, in winter, in spring with her secret too awful to name. Amelia started treating him. She stashed the Paul Mall in her mouth and started counting on her fingers. 2013? For a while, anyway. All the residents here have a counseling option. You check it on the admit form. Baffets wanted his, I guess, and Dr. Kent was who he got. So, I paused the beat. That's it? Shireen was having trouble going forward, and she knew it. Gazing into the heat haze that fronted the dock like spectral fog before a ship, she tremblingly drew on her third cigarette. Amelia only told me later, confidentiality is a hell of a thing. She started to notice things slowly about him. Things that weren't, you know, quite right. Things he told her? That came later. What she noticed, that came first. Got a waitstaffer here by the name of Atone. That's short for Antoine or for Tony or something. Real sweet kid. Good, good looking. Whoever can't walk to the cafe for meals, he brings them breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Amelia noticed Baffets liked him. Stared at him always a little too long. Interested in him, you know, said Shireen. And more than just what he had under the platter. So he liked men, said Rob. So what? Atone is 17, she said. But Atone was only the tip of the iceberg. This was back around the time when those grandmother's boys started coming more often. Back then, they were sophomores in high school, 
I think. Amelia and Baffitts would talk for a while. Whatever he had on his mind needed mending. Then she wheeled him through the place on that barge of a bed that he had, making sounds. He struck up something with the boys. Seemed innocent at first, I guess. They were excellent students, I heard in the papers, so he mostly made talk about what they were learning. What subjects did they like in school? Why those subjects and not others? Football, okay. Why football? Trombone, that was better. Why that and not flute? <laughs> Dr. Kent felt he was opening space in the minds of two boys who'd been told all their lives, you do this long enough, you'll be it. He was opening space up for doubt, for free will. She said he was obsessed with that. Free will, he told her in their sessions, is everything you'll ever have. So then what happened next? Asked Rob. Dr. Kent did some research. The nurse's face darkened. Bavitz was, and he wasn't the person they say. He'd been a professor at Tulane, all that. He'd also one time been under indictment for running a child porno ring in New Orleans. She stopped for a moment, allowed that to settle. That's right, said Shirlene. From her lips to your ears, university gently lets him go. It's a private school move. They don't want any headlines. He even keeps his pension, maybe. But he loses his housing, his colleagues' respect. Over time, he turns into a kind of Boo Radley. Apparently, though, the conviction got tanked, somewhere in the mix with the cops or the courts. This is after Katrina, mind you. Shit is fucked. Baffetz gets off kingfish free. But instead of them sending him home with an aide or to live with his son out in Jefferson Parish, they send him to Seven Oaks. Special delivery. Porno ring, said Cajun Rob. Polaroids. Movies. Live action. What were they? What little I know about that type of stuff is a lot of the time it's whatever it is. It's that illegal. That hush-hush. These scumbags take what they can get. But the stuff Babbitt's made? It was really specific. That's what nibbled at Amelia. They were, like, these stylized, high-quality photos of boys ages 13 to 16. All black, but dressed in this tatted-up, old-timey clothing. Like they weren't taken now at all, but a hundred years back, in the jazz age or something. Do you have any notion who else was involved apart from just Baffitts? I said, hopefully. Couldn't say, the shift nurse said. All as I know, it was a ring. Rob said, Kent tipped them off about Baffitts. Shireen's eyes grew hard as she nodded at Rob. Weren't just those boys that took the bus. Dr. Kent took it, too and she synced up their schedules. On their way, they'd pass the time. It took a couple rides, I think, for her to broach the Baffet subject, but when she did, it went like this. The man is evil. Steer clear of him. That was the word she used? Evil? I asked. I do believe it was, she said. I see that it's strange for a doctor to say, not altogether scientific. But sometimes people are, you know, there's just no better word in the world to describe them. And what was their response? I asked. They were receptive, she said. A little shocked at first, I think. That stuff at their age is a hard pill to swallow. But by and by, they listened well. Next time they came to Seven Oaks, they stayed with their grandmas, let Baffets float by them. And the next time, and maybe a couple times after, 
And then, Amelia Kent was dead. You think that they killed her, said Rob, to protect him? I'm not sure what to think, she said. Is that what the cops have been saying? Rob nodded. From what I know about those boys, and what they've been saying on the news, that don't make too much sense to me. Though I can't help from wondering, what about Baffitt's? He seemed to have some power on them. Sure, he's a pervert and loony to boot, but kids at that age are a little bit loony. Believe me, she said. I've got two living with me. He might have convinced them it mattered somehow, what Dr. Ken had said about them. She paused for a moment, considering something, her eyes looking down at her dove-colored shoes. Or maybe it was even worse. Amelia might have been too late. Meaning Baffitts had already done things to them, said Cajun Rob with sharp distaste. Or had someone else do things, she said. Victims tend to blame themselves. That Baffitts is smart about pictures and people. He might have convinced them that now they were spoilt, that they had no other choice but to go all the way. We all took a moment to think about that. The prospect was hideous. Also compelling. I wanted a smoke of my own from Shireen, but Lil came to my mind and I thought better of it. One thing that eludes me, I said to Shireen, about the Kent-Baffitts teenager triangle is why Baffitts opened himself up to Kent if he wanted to keep his proclivities secret. Even evil needs an ear. Especially evil, I guess, said Shireen. The devil lamenteth to Eve in the garden. Baffitts spills the beans to Kent. I'm assuming you know what we're going to ask next. Working those lashes, Rob smiled at Shireen. He's in room 106, she said. He'll be there now. It's almost lunch. We nodded and turned back inside in a hurry, but not before she caught my wrist. Aren't you two forgetting something? She pressed the five-pounder case file in my hands. I'll say it mildewed when the AC went leaky. Thanks, I said. We're in your debt. Let's call it even, said Shireen. When he first came, your friend, she said, and she pantomimed X's haircut with her hands. I didn't have my shit in order. When I saw he'd been murdered, I felt bad about it. Maybe if I'd just spoke up, maybe if I'd... On and on. I know it ain't my fault he's dead, but if I had told him, he might be alive. This world is a horrible, meaningless place with so much unfairness it boggles the mind. But, I said, no buts about it. She hopped off the edge of the loading dock, lighter, then stubbed out her smoke in the floor of the bay. And then she walked around the front, where the camera could see her, to finish her shift. We followed her after a little delay. She was at the nurse's station when we got there, no biggie. She pretended not to see us as we headed through the lobby, bending to tend to her flesh-colored hose or to pull something off of the printer just missed them. To enhance the charade of our nondescript presence, I stopped with the coffee cart off of the lobby and poured myself a dilute cup. This I carried through the halls until we got to 106. Rob said, here goes something. He reached out and knocked. We held our breath, but no one answered. Asleep maybe, said Rob. Or dead? Rob shrugged off the thought. He still talks, don't he? I sipped my coffee, knocked again. 
Mr. Baffitts, I said, have a minute to chat? But again, there was nothing. Well, that's disappointing. Rob held up his palms and then slapped his thighs with them. I was on the verge of kneeling in the very public hallway to peer through the keyhole or crack in the door when an orderly walked by and noticed us, stopped. Help y'all, he said. He was standing behind us. Good-looking kid, his name tag, Aton. We were hoping to get with Cornelius, I said in the best unassuming put-on I could manage. Y'all family, said Aton. Ex-students, I said. Green wave, said Aton. I'm an LSU man. Is he around? said Cajun Rob. Y'all Tulanians all business, ain't you? He said. No one calls him Cornelius. He's Neely to us. Neely, <laughs> right, I thought to say. Professor student force of habit. Neely ain't around right now. Went out with his son, Mr. Walker, for lunch. Just now? said Rob. They'll amble on back before dinner tonight. We shuffled through the sliding doors, Shireen watching us from the desk with confusion. I still carried my coffee with me. Out here in the heat, it was sick-making stuff. We crossed the parking lot not talking, both of us half-distracted, our eyes on the ground, the small consolations of further AC and Baffitt's case file held under my arm making what had just happened to us bearable when we had come so fucking close. Then suddenly Rob was no longer beside me. He was standing in the parking lot a couple paces back, watching something occur towards the front of the building. That something was a panel van, big, off-white Chevy with handicapped tags, backing out of a spot to the left of the entrance. I saw what Rob saw, and not just the car's make, exactly as Shireen described, but the red and white license plate riding the bumper. WWJ804. As we followed the van onto Veterans Boulevard, past car dealerships, box stores, and dack shacks, I came clean to Rob about all my withholdings, the belloc, and all that I felt it might mean, my sketchy rendezvous with Lil, Bo Furlisher, aka young Walter Baffitts, waiting in darkness outside of my house. I had never had reason to keep them from him, even as I had not told him I hadn't known why. I admitted this now, with head-shaking confusion. There was maybe some part of me somewhere, I said, that had wanted to keep him aloof of the mess but by the time I realized how unhelpful that was, it was too late already. It was high time I swan dove right onto my sword. For all of a minute, I'm kidding you not, Rob didn't say a word to me. He just followed the panel van, eyes dead set on it. He did what I paid him to do. He drove forward. I sipped in my coffee, bird-like, irritating. Or anyway, I felt that way. He was pissed, I could tell. Just this way that he had. I'm cool with my level of anger. Are you? The panel van braked at a light up ahead. For a moment it seemed he was not going to stop. That he was going to fender bender with the psychos up ahead to teach me the lesson I never quite learned when just before impact he pumped the brakes. My coffee spilled upwards and onto my shirt. It was still pretty hot and I gritted my teeth as the stuff hit my chest and soaked into my jeans. Okay, I deserve that, I said. And then some, Rob responded. I brushed my hand across my chest as the coffee soaked into my shirt. I know what I'm saying is utter bullshit because here we are now at the end of the line and what can it matter now anyway, right? But I hope you can see, 
in my own twisted way that what I was doing, I did it for you. Agent Rob just shook his head. The van started forward again, gaining speed. You couldn't see shit when it came to the driver. These Chimo vans are all like that. The side view showed only the bulk of who knew as they guided the car rigidly through the heat. At some point, we both took a right off of veterans, heading into the streets of the new neighborhood. There was old Matre, and just Matre. Go figure. The old part was nicer. More moss and Greek columns, a deep south that harkened to simpler times. While the Matre part was much more of a burb. Prefab houses, swimming pools, lots of gated offshoots of the main neighborhood with names like Spanish Lake Estates and Magnolia Terrace. You get the idea. At present, we were in the latter. The streets that we followed the panel down, always one block away, were disquieting clones. Driveway. Hydrant, palm, repeat. And I started to wonder the further we went that when and if we had to flee, if we would be able to find our way back to the unloveliness of the true and right world. The dwarf stood out on someone's lawn, his shadow long across the grass. He tipped his stovepipe with the sun at his back, and then were stopping along with the van. It was hard to discern the address they were at, both because of the houses and where we were parked, and yet I could only assume it was white with cerulean window trim, just like the others. I wish that I believed you, Jim. Rob cut the ignition and stared straight ahead. But we both know the reason you did what you did. You wanted to break the case open. Just you. I know I'm a terrible asshole, I said. But can't we forget it and just go inside? Forget it? said Rob. Maybe save it? For later? And who says we're going inside, anyway? You have to be kidding me, Rob. Take a look. I did. His face was not so kidding. We're alone, he continued. We're too close and we're running on fumes. Here's what we're going to do. As soon as they take Baffitts out of that van, if Baffitts is even inside it at all, we're going to creep up, scope the house's address, and call in Daydu and O'Shea on the double. Daydu and O'Shea? What the fuck did they do? You see? That's what I'm saying, said Rob. It's just you. The goddamn Jim show. J-I-M in lights. Did you somehow forget the fact that we're New Orleans ambulance chasers, not cops? I scoffed at that. So says the driver. His face went blank. He turned away. He was rummaging now in the Mazda's back seat. He returned with the clean button up in one hand. You're going to want to change your shirt. He pressed it rough against my chest. I did without a second thought, stripping off the coffee mess and balling it up in my trembling hands and stuffing it under the front of my seat like some shameful companion to crime or addiction. Meanwhile, the front of the panel van opened. Two figures got out either side in the street. One was clearly Walker Baffitts. I could tell by the lithe, virile way that he moved, while the one from the passenger door was a woman. She climbed down one-legged to perch in the street hair the color of asphalt or hurricane sky. It was Lil in blue jeans and a fleur-de-lis t-shirt. They opened the panel van's long sliding door and started to carry the evil man out.
The Lineup Podcast is written and produced by the Lineup staff and myself, Matthew Thompson. Special thanks to voice actor Michael Bates, author Adrian Van Young, and our partners in crime at Open Road Media. Our audio producers are Chai Dingari and Andrew Kohler. Background music is by Audioblocks, and our theme music is by Absofacto at absofacto.com. For more information on the stories we present, visit our website, thelineup.com. That's the-line-up.com. Be sure to sign up for our newsletter as well, which brings you five mysteries to your inbox twice a week. This is Matthew, and that does it for me. Till next time, keep it weird.